The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4, The Medieval World, Episode 65, The Tang Dynasty. It's time to pick up our ongoing story about the history of China, which we last left at the rise of the Sui dynasty during the Classical World volume. The earliest origins of Chinese civilization are fairly hazy, as they are considered to be semi-legendary. The Xia dynasty may have existed around 4,000 years ago. The Shang dynasty that followed it is the earliest dynasty of China for which we have a good evidence of its existence. We covered these dynasties during the Ancient World volume of the podcast. Around 3,000 years ago, the Zhou dynasty brought quite a centralised governance to China. However, this centralisation would diminish over the centuries of the first millennium BCE as local rulers started to gain more power. With the rise of local rulers came competition for power and despite the Zhou dynasty still being the ceremonial and spiritually approved rulers of China, the local rulers were at war with one another, bringing about the Warring States period of Chinese history. This was also a time when intellectual and spiritual schools of thinking emerged, such as Taoism and Confucianism. This kind of advanced form of academic philosophising is not too dissimilar to what was happening in Greece during the same millennium. During the 3rd century BCE, one particular movement made a military bid for overall supremacy over the whole of China, and this resulted in the formation of the Qin dynasty. The emperor known as Qin Shi Huang is considered to be the first true emperor of a unified China and he would do much to standardise weights, measures and coinage for the benefit of successful trade. Construction of the Great Wall of China flourished during this period and Qin Shi Huang's burial tomb is guarded by the famous Terracotta Army. The short-lived Qin dynasty was succeeded by the Han dynasty. During the years of the Han dynasty, the Chinese would produce the first type of paper and trade routes with the West would begin to become highly significant, especially with the growing success of the Roman Empire. With the Silk Road growing in prosperity, many of the nomadic steppe cultures would begin to try to exploit the opportunities available and Han China would have major problems with the Xiongnu cultures to their north, but Han China maintained its authority with its Confucianist-based ideology. Upon the collapse of the Han dynasty of China at the beginning of the 3rd century, China would fragment and would enter into a comparative dark age. 
the instability would result in a number of dynasties and peoples vying for power against each other, and there was a generally recognisable north and south divide. With the Silk Road still being used, the philosophy of Buddhism was able to migrate eastwards to the lands of China. Towards the end of the 6th century, the northern Zhou dynasty led by the people of the Shanbei was in control of the western lands of northern China. During a succession crisis within the northern Zhou dynasty, one man emerged to seize control. His name was Yang Qian. Yang Jiang was involved in the northern Zhou conquest of their eastern neighbours, the northern Qi. When Yang Chen seized control and declared himself the new emperor of the Sui dynasty in the year 581, he very quickly moved to annex the lands of the south, ruled by the Chen dynasty. The annexation of Chen was completed by the year 589 and China would once again be unified for the first time in almost 300 years. Yang Zhen would come to be known as Emperor Wen of Sui. Emperor Wen established the Sui capital city at a place near the Wei River, a yellow river tributary, that had been a place that was a capital city for the Han dynasty and was named Chang'an, the traditional name for the modern city of Xi'an, Emperor Wen reconstructed the city and called it Da Xing. Emperor Wen would also make efforts to ensure that Buddhism coexisted with Confucianism within the Sui Empire. He would also make important reforms to the administration and the military of China. Emperor Wen would be succeeded by his son, Emperor Yang who continued some of his father's good work. Yang would oversee the completion of the Grand Canal, an important means by which to travel from the north to the south and vice versa, in a land where all the major rivers run from west to east. This allowed the surplus of rice in the south to be transported to the north. Yang would also expand his influence all the way to Indochina, to the far south of China itself. Emperor Yang made the decision to try to expand to China's northeast, where the nation of Kokoria existed, which is a nation closely linked to Korean history. It was an ill-advised decision. The Chinese military was stretched and unable to obtain any rewards at all. This was highly unnerving for the Chinese people and Emperor Yang had created a target on his back as rebellions broke out. Emperor Yang's elite military Xiao Guo army turned against him and Emperor Yang was assassinated by them. In 617, the capital city was seized by a powerful Sui general called Li Yuan who would proclaim himself Emperor Gao Zhu of the Tang dynasty of China. The capital city, Daxing, would be renamed Chang'an. The Sui dynasty was short-lived, but it laid the groundwork and set up the infrastructure for the oncoming Tang dynasty to be successful.
One of the biggest problems for Emperor Gaozu was the relationship of his sons. Three particular sons who had been in active military service for him had ambitions for power for themselves. Gaozu would entrust those sons with imperial duties and particularly military campaigns and regional administration. One of his sons, Li Ximin, was allowed to administer lands in the east centred at the city of Luoyang. He was aware that two of his brothers wanted him dead as it would clear the path for them to replace their father as the emperor. It was Li Ximin who would ambush his brothers, allowing him to kill them before they could do the same to him. His father abdicated in his favour shortly afterwards. Emperor Taizong Li Ximin would become Emperor Taizong in the year 626 and he would instantly look to take power away from the military leaders and move it back towards civil administration. He would also revive the tradition of the Han dynasty from many centuries previous that those who wished to work in national politics would now be required to take an examination to be able to work in that capacity. This generally ensured that the right people did the right job for the sake of the nation and would avoid the potentially damaging practice of nepotism. However, there would be another concern in the fact that the aristocrats of China would not necessarily inherit political positions and this could allow Emperor Taizong to be a monarch with more absolute power which could have a different set of implications if he did what he liked without any regulation. One man who Emperor Taizong was impressed with was a supporter of one of his deceased brothers, so therefore a former enemy, and his name was Wei Zheng. Taizong oversaw Wei Zheng become one of the chancellors of Tang, China, and Wei Zheng was quite outspoken and opinionated in respect of the activity of the emperor. The emperor dealt with this respectfully because having this open-minded and accepting attitude was in line with Confucianist ideals. Although it is said that Wei Zheng's attitude towards him did frustrate him. However, with strong advisers in his government, Emperor Taizong would make some wise decisions in terms of consolidating the infrastructure of his realm, including the creation of academic establishments. One area where Emperor Taizong did face criticism was in relation to his foreign policy. To the north of Tang, China, were the vast Turkic Khaganates of the Steppelands, ruled by the Gukturks, and to the east of them, the expanded state of Kokoriya, which was ruled from the more agricultural lands of the Korean Peninsula. The Gukturks always had an eye on the riches available in China. Emperor Taizong was keen to ensure that there would be no further incursions and so he planned a conquest. Emperor Taizong knew that the East Turgut Khaganate was subjugating a peoples called the Xiang Tuo, who were a Tili peoples, that is a Turkic peoples who emerged in the aftermath of the Xiongnu. Therefore, Emperor Taizong 
reached out to the Shi Yuan Tuo to join his cause against the East Turgut Khaganate, and as a result, Tang China would defeat and subjugate the East Turkic Khaganate and establish a protectorate in its place, therefore extending Tang influence. However, Emperor Taizong's campaigns against the West Turgut Khaganate were less successful, and Chancellor Wei Zheng, among others, was highly critical of the Emperor's aggressive intentions overstretching Chinese resources. When Emperor Taizong attempted to conquer Kogoria, the Tang army suffered the same fate as Sui China had before them. With resources stretched, they were unable to impose their will and had to retreat, while Emperor Taizong was left reflecting on how Chancellor Wei Zheng would be saying, I told you so, had he not have passed away in the year 643. However, Emperor Taizong's reign is viewed upon as an impressive high point in Chinese history. The East Turkic Khaganate had been destroyed, and the societies in and around the Tarim Basin in Central Asia were also brought under Tang influence. Emperor Taizong died in the year 649, and this may have been due to elixir poisoning. We have mentioned the dangers of Chinese elixirs during the classical volume where emperors all the way back to Qi Huang were asking alchemists to create elixirs that would grant eternal life. But of course, we have no evidence that such an elixir ever existed and the concoctions created in some cases contained dangerous ingredients such as arsenic. In the aftermath of Emperor Taizong's reign, Tang China maintained its expansionist ambitions. The new emperor was not Emperor Taizong's favoured son for the succession. He was Taizong's ninth son and his imperial name was Emperor Gaozong. Upon his accession, he would choose to marry a concubine of his father, who would be called Wu Zetian. Wu Zetian is one of the most famous women of Chinese history as we will find out. The Age of Wu Zetian Wu Zetian's husband, Emperor Gaozong, would have the same expansionist ambitions as his father. In some respects, he didn't really have a choice about heading west to do battle with the Western Turkic Khaganate, as a former Tang military general, Ashinahalu, had declared himself the Khan of the Western Turks. As the Western Turkic Khan, he would begin to attack Tang Chinese interests around the Tarim Basin, so Emperor Gaozong approved actions against the Khaganate. The final encounter would see Tang China defeat the Western Turkic Khaganate near Lake Isikul in the modern country of Kyrgyzstan in the year 657 the Western Turkic Khaganate fragmented in the aftermath. While this was going on, there was some fierce opposition to Wu Zetian's accession to the role of the emperor's wife. Wu was not of the highest aristocratic stock and was a concubine of her husband's father, which opponents would see as shameful. 
she would have to use her position of influence to fight back against her opponents, and many would be exiled or executed, so she would already be demonstrating her stomach for the fight. By 660, she was able to exercise her will and be the dominant force behind her husband, who was seemingly becoming a weak ruler both in character and in health. The Chinese conquest of the Western Turkic Khaganate brought Tang China into close contact with the Umayyad Caliphate, which was the first massive Islamic empire of the Middle East. Chinese religious tolerance meant that Emperor Gao Zong welcomed Muslim envoys to his court and approved the construction of mosques in China itself. So it may come as a surprise to many to realise that Islam reached China so early in the religion's existence, but the circumstances of the world make it understandable how this was possible. The nation of Kokoria had long frustrated emperors of both the Sui and Tang dynasties as it had remained elusive from those Chinese rulers who sought to bring the resource-rich peninsula back under Chinese influence. Tang China, actually being steered by the emperor's wife Wu Zetian, chose to form an alliance with the Korean nation-state of Silla in order to attack Kokoria yet again. With a local ally, supply lines to the Tang army were not stretched and so this time, finally, Kokoria fell to the Chinese. The only problem with this conquest is that both Tang China and Silla had their own ideas about what would become of the Korean peninsula and its kingdoms, and it didn't involve sharing the spoils. With Tang China attempting to enforce what it had done elsewhere by creating protectorates, Silla had no interest in bowing down to the Chinese and conflict was inevitable. This time without a Korean ally, Chinese supply lines were stretched and inevitably the Chinese were pushed out of the key Korean city of Pyongyang by the year 676. Despite this setback, Tang China was now established as one of the most widely influential Chinese empires in history. If it wasn't apparent just how much power and influence that Wu Zetian had earned during her lifetime as the wife of the emperor up to this point, then it would be after the death of her husband that the real test of her position of authority would come. Emperor Gao Zong died in 683 and was succeeded by his son who ruled as Emperor Zhongzong. Emperor Zhongzong was yet another emperor heavily influenced by his wife, and Wu Zetian saw this as a danger to the existing status quo, so she deposed her son and installed another son, Emperor Rei Zhong, as the new emperor, effectively a puppet of his mother. A rebellion against this move was successfully put down by Wu Zetian, which cemented her position of authority within China. In the year 690, Wu Zetian deposed her puppet emperor's son, Rei Zong, and created a new Chinese dynasty with herself as the empress. She would name the dynasty directly after the ancient Zhou dynasty, which we spoke of during the Classical World volume. She would rule nominally as the emperor, 
although alternatively we can call her the Empress Regnant of the Zhou dynasty. She was able to maintain rule of China unopposed, but by this time she was in her 60s and the question of who would succeed her came into prominence. With the renaming of the dynasty, no one was in a position to take anything for granted. The Tang imperial bloodline was within the Li family, while the Empress herself was a member of the Wu family, and so speculation was rife about which family would now be in line to succeed the Empress when she would eventually die. The Empress Wu Zetian ruled over a prosperous and culturally flourishing empire with the connection to Persian societies, meaning that the exchange of materials and ideas could travel with relative ease along the Silk Roads. The capital city was established at Luoyang, named Shendu by the Empress, but even the capital city was overshadowed by the city of Chang'an further west, which would effectively be the cultural capital of China. Such was the prosperity of Chang'an that the most respected sources recognised that Chang'an was the largest city in the entire world around the turn of the 8th century with between 600,000 and a million residents. China would also be utilising the Maritime Silk Road to good effect during this period too. During Wu Zetian's later years, her energy levels diminished and she was more susceptible to the influences of others, which brought about conflict in and around the imperial court. It does seem that during her lifetime, Empress Wu Zetian endeavoured to remain loyal to the success of China above any temptation to support any one family's desire to monopolise the imperial court. Some historians suggest that she was a power-hungry usurper, while others praise her resolve and abilities and consider her period of influence and rule as one that improved China. She eventually died in 705 at the age of 81, having been deposed earlier in the same year. The Tang dynasty was reinstated under her son, who returned as emperor, ruling as emperor Zhong Zong and Lu Shan Rebellion. Eventually, the Emperor of China would be a son of Emperor Hui Zong, who ruled as Emperor Xuanzong. Xuanzong's reign was one of the longest of all the Tang emperors at 44 years, beginning in the year 712. During his reign, Tang China maintained its healthy status, but with its vast territory, there would be rebellions from Turkic factions and tensions with the Tibetan Empire, with lands to the Tibetans' north border and east border being under the control of Tang China. The affluence of Tang China undoubtedly helped it to maintain its status over the decades of Song's reign. The An family were of Turkic origin, but members have been invited to join the Tang military by Emperor Zhuanzong. One particular member, An Lushan, made his way up through the ranks of the Tang military, despite having no significant background. By the 750s, An Lushan, described as an overweight man, had ingratiated himself to the emperor and was given one of the highest levels of military command. 
the emperor himself was married to the imperial consort Yang Guifei, seemingly his fifth consort and a lady noted for her beauty. With her being a member of the Yang family, other members of the Yang family made a bid for power including a distant cousin of the consort, a man called Yang Guozhong. The rivalry between An Lushan and Yang Guozhong led to conflict as An Lushan launched a rebellion in 755. It is difficult to understand why An Lushan seemingly turned against Tang China completely, a country that he had been loyal to. I might suggest that Yang Guozhong influenced the emperor and may have convinced the emperor that he couldn't trust An Lushan, as it appears that during 755, An Lushan failed to carry out his duties by refusing to attend summonses by the imperial court demonstrating a distancing in relations between the emperor and An Lushan. An Lushan was a force to be reckoned with, however, and he quickly moved in to take the important city of Luoyang. The emperor consolidated his position in the capital city of Chang'an, with the authority of the Tang dynasty being threatened by a man from a different ethnic background, that is, not of Han or indigenous Chinese ethnicity. Other non-Han military leaders in Tang territory tried to take control of outlying provinces and protectorates. Emperor Xuanzong may have been paying the price for his policy of allowing non-Han representatives to have too much power. The Emperor and Yang Guozhong launched a counterattack against An Lushan's forces, but they were disastrously defeated, allowing An Lushan to launch a credible attack on the capital city of Chang'an itself. The conquest of Chang'an broke the resolve of the imperial court. The Emperor Xuanzong, his beloved beautiful wife Yang Guifei and the military commander Yang Guozhong fled the capital along with their military entourage. On their way to the relative safety of the Yang heartlands, many non-Yang family members who were loyal to the emperor blamed the Yang family for their misfortune. They would turn on Yang Guozhong and his loyal followers and murder them where they stood. There was one member of the Yang family remaining, which was the emperor's wife, and it was demanded that she be executed too. Emperor Xuanzong was powerless to stop this eventuality befalling his beloved wife. Yang Guifei was strangled to death with a length of silk, and the emperor was heartbroken and despondent to the politics of China in the future as a consequence. An Lushan really didn't have much opportunity to enjoy his victory. His excess weight may have been a cause or an indicator of ill health, and he chose to stay in Luoyang rather than live in Chang'an. An Lushan's son, An Qingzhu, saw an opportunity for power and seemingly instigated the murder of his father, An Lushan, in 757. An Qingzhu 
himself would suffer a similar fate to his father just a couple of years later. And although the rebellion created by An Lu Shan continued, it lost its momentum and the imperial forces of the Tang dynasty defeated the rebels in 763. The Tang dynasty really never achieved the same level of authority over its vast empire again, with the local leaders obtaining more influence over their own areas of influence, becoming more like warlords than loyal imperial governors. Reflecting on the An Lushan Rebellion, one of the most notable talking points is the death toll. A census carried out before the rebellion counted almost 53 million individuals in China. One carried out after counts just under 17 million. If we take this on face value, then two-thirds of the Chinese population were lost during the rebellion, which makes it the deadliest domestic war of the medieval world. But historians do question the accuracy of the censuses, suggesting that the quality of information gathering in the aftermath of the rebellion diminished. Decline. The Tibetan Empire was very quick to try to take advantage of the disarray in Tang, China, and they marched on the Chinese capital, Chang'an. Tang, China had also enjoyed the loyalty of their political allies, the Uyghurs, in their battles during the middle of the 8th century, including against the An Lushan rebels. But even they took the opportunity to loot the capital city following the defeat of the rebels. Tang, China was losing friends and losing influence despite their victory over the An Lushan rebels. The Tibetan occupation of Chang'an was short-lived, but Tibet had demonstrated its ascendancy in the face of Tang, China, and would successfully push the Tang out of Central Asia, forcing them back into China. The Tibetans were now in control of the Silk Road, robbing the Chinese of their financial pipeline that had made Chang'an such a global powerhouse of a city. By the middle of the 9th century, the economy of Tang, China, was much more fragile than it had been before the An Lushan Rebellion. When Emperor Wu Zong came to the imperial throne in 840, he would take some highly controversial action to address this issue. Buddhism had flourished in China since becoming established during the time of the Han Dynasty. Buddhism would exist in China alongside Taoism and Confucianism from that time and it would blossom over the centuries, becoming the most popular religion in the nation. Many emperors would observe and promote Buddhism, but Emperor Wu Zong did not. Wu Zong was a devout Taoist and looking to persecute Buddhists during his reign. Why did Wu Zong persecute Buddhists? To find the answer, we have to take a broader look at exactly what was going on. Wu Zong is recorded to have been persecuting not only Buddhists, but also the followers of Manichaeism, Nestorianism and Zoroastrianism. These three religions were minority religions, so the impact on those religions is not talked about hugely for historical purposes. The reality seems to be that Emperor Wu Zong was targeting all 
non-Daoists, and the reason to take their lands and possessions for the purpose of filling the imperial coffers. As many as a quarter of a million Buddhist monks and nuns were defrocked. It would have a long-lasting impact on the status of Buddhism in China as a consequence. But as soon as Emperor Wu Zong died, the persecution stopped. Still, Tang China was in decline and towards the end of the 9th century, numerous rebellions were breaking out around the nation. The imperial army sent to deal with them could not be relied upon, with mutinous behaviour being too common for comfort. Tang China would pay for their disorganisation when a salt smuggler called Huang Chao started making a bid for power. Originally, he joined a rebellion before becoming the leader of the rebellion. And this was all after he tried to enter Chinese politics by sitting the civil examination, which he was unable to pass. The Tang military would score a significant victory over the rebellion, forcing Huang Chao into a southward retreat. However, it does appear that Huang Chao was actually strategizing a new offensive. Huang Chao's army is said to have massacred port cities along the East China Sea and South China Sea coasts while moving southward before taking a more inland route back northward into the Yangtze River Valley. Huang Chao requested amnesty from the Tang court, but their refusal meant that he had to go for the biggest prize of all, the capital city of Chang'an. After an arduous 30-month journey that possibly should have been opposed more than it actually was, when we consider how some of the Tang military allowed Huang Chao's safe passage, the city of Luoyang fell to the rebels with ease. This provided a base from which to launch an attack on Chang'an and the helpless emperor and his entourage abandoned the city to its fate in the year 881. Despite Tang disarray aiding Huang Chao's cause, the reality of China was that it had become a lawless mess where local warlords were now gunning for each other. And despite Huang Chao's success, now individuals were looking for their own share of the spoils, and their loyalty to Huang Chao had become unnecessary for them. One of Huang Chao's military generals, Zhu Wen, defected to the imperial cause and was granted a governorship for his loyalty. A group of Shatuo Turks, led by a man called Li Yong, then attacked Huang Chao and drove him out of Chang'an. This eventually led to Huang Chao's ultimate defeat and his death in the year 884. This left Zhu Wen and Li Yong as two of the main rival contenders for power in China. Zhu Wen would emerge victorious and it seems that he arranged for the murder of the Tang Emperor Zhao Zong, although he somehow managed to pass the blame for this act onto others. Zhu then installed Zhao Zong's 11-year-old son as the new Tang Emperor Ai in the year 904, 
but it would not be long before Ju Wen's true ambitions surfaced as he killed many members of the child's own family before deposing him as emperor in 907 and having him poisoned in 908 at the age of 15. This was so that Ju Wen could proclaim himself as the new emperor unopposed. This was when the Tang dynasty ended, but the new later Liang dynasty established by Ju Wen only controlled a fraction of Tang China's former territory in the north. The rest of China dramatically fragmented into various dynasties and kingdoms. Most people aren't interested in just one topic. Don't settle for a podcast about just one subject. That rhymed. Greetings, we're technically a conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. On our podcast, we do things just a little bit different. Every week, we share a new topic, and the other hosts have no idea what the topic will be. Our topics are all over the place, from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. We've covered everything from true crime, historical events and people, the supernatural and the occult. I like that. Urban legends and folklore. My favorite. No matter what we cover, we try to make the episodes interesting and funny. Eh, eh, eh. Don't mean to be the bad guy, but our lawyer said we legally couldn't call our show funny. We have a lawyer? Let me tell you what I told our lawyer. Come here so I can show you how far I can legally stick my high-heeled boot up your... Check us out at technicallyaconversation.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Technically a conversation. We're like a lifestyle brand. Yeah. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on Tang China. And um, I must, as always, apologise for all of my Chinese pronunciation. I'm in no way a native speaker and um, my education on Chinese pronunciation is very, very minimal. So um, I did my best and I apologise if I've made a couple of hashes, but... I did want to also not be ignorant of Chinese pronunciation as well. So, um, mate, I don't know, maybe I should have, uh, you know, tried to stick to the basic method. But it's difficult. It's a difficult decision to make. So I apologise to anyone who I may have offended with my uh, bad pronunciations. But um, anyway, if you enjoy this podcast and you would like to support the podcast, please visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. There's plenty to look at on there anyway. But if you want to support the podcast, just click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. Uh, By doing that, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati and you will qualify for the gifts and rewards outlined on, uh, on the Patreon site itself. Um, if you want to access bonus material and want to listen to the podcast ad-free, um, then listen to the podcast on Spotify. I do have some news, actually. The um, the bonus material that we made in 2023, we're not going to be doing it anymore in 2024. Instead, we're going to be publishing the uh, Illuminati debriefs on um, for everyone to enjoy going forward. So uh, we've made that decision 
for the future and for the benefit of the podcast. But the the bonus material that already exists on Spotify, you'll still be able to access that through the subscription. Um, you can get a podcast ad, uh, sorry, an ad free podcast um, by um, subscribing. If you'd like to get in touch with me here at the podcast, then please drop me a line at history of the world podcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. We had one review this week and it was made on Christmas Day. What a great time to make a review. And it was from uh, Bollyberg from the USA, um, who's uh, titled their review Prehistory. And uh, the the review says, I enjoy this podcast. However, I very much believe in a young earth creation. I believe that the observed data fits creation much better than evolution. However, I do appreciate the, as far as I know, the accurate depiction of current evolutionary theory. As a creationist, I should have at least a basic knowledge of what evolution teaches. I very much enjoyed the latest history in this podcast, especially the one about Cahokia Mounds. As to a manner of speaking, I grew up near Chicago and later in life moved to Wisconsin near Green Bay. And there are subtle but noticeable differences in that distance that um, and I find that interesting. Well, thank you very much. Um, I think always the, the most difficult thing for me when presenting the mainstream point of view is that I don't want to alienate. Uh, those people who don't believe in the mainstream point of view and I'm always very quick to state that this is what I've read and you know I wasn't there of course we, we should always I believe be open-minded to suggesting it's the only way that we revise our histories is to be open-minded to new ideas and uh, I think it's very very important that we don't have a closed-minded or narrow-minded uh, point of view to what we believe our history was we only know what we read um to be quite to be quite frank and you know we can we only know the interpretation of scientific data um but i always think it's it's highly interesting to listen to other points of view and i i think you miss out when you don't do that i think you truly miss out on uh, different perspectives very interesting perspectives and some of the science behind those alternative perspectives I think is is also very interesting so I appreciate and welcome that review thank you very much Bollyberg well that's it for another year in actual fact some of you will have uh, already uh, brought the new year in already um, some of you won't have some of you will be waiting and maybe listening to this very podcast while you're waiting maybe for people to, to turn up to your house or before you go out somewhere. So I'd like to thank all of you uh, for everything that you've done for this podcast throughout the whole of the year 2023. And uh, it's truly, it's been quite a challenging year for me, I can admit, but um, I, I certainly would not be at this point in the podcast journey without all of your support there's there's never a true word said I don't think that I would have you know I think this podcast may have fallen by the wayside or you know I would have I would have maybe tried my hand at something different had it not been for all of the support of you 
the listening public, the hot welders, as I like to refer to you as. So I'd like to thank you sincerely for everything you've done for me and the podcast during 2023. And I feel confident that we're going to have a successful 2024 together. So um, thank you so much. And until we meet again in a week's time, uh, make sure to be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.